Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines, analysis of global oil geopolitics as Saudi Arabia moves away from the US, and we interview Ukrainian art historian and journalist Oksana Semenik on the impact of the war on the arts, cultural colonialism, and the future of art in Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 4th of April, one year and 39 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, economics reporter Melissa Lawford, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, and our guest is Oksana Semenik, art historian and journalist. I started by asking Francis for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, thank you, David, and good afternoon to our listeners around the world. Yes, I'll start with the battlefield. Ukraine says that it has destroyed 14 out of 17 Iranian-made suicide drones launched by Russia overnight on the port city of Odessa. They said this morning that they were destroyed over the Odessa region in the country's southwest, so they didn't make it all of the way to Odessa. And I'll read the quote in full from Ukraine's military command. In total, up to 17 launches of UAV, that's unmanned aerial vehicle, attacks were recorded, presumably from the eastern coast area of the Sea of Azov. And went on saying, according to preliminary information, there were no human losses. So there's some quite striking imagery coming out of Ukraine this morning on relation to that. But obviously, from the Ukrainian perspective, if what they're saying is true, then this has been another successful instance of them stopping these suicide drones before they can be effective. And that's, of course, a theme that 
Dom has spoken about on the podcast in the past is and, and a huge development really over recent months from where we were, where these drones were being much more effective in the scale and devastation they were causing. Whereas now, because of the defensive measures that have been adopted by Ukraine and the Ukrainian defense technology that's been given quite often by the West, uh, this is much more, much less of a threat than, than it once was. Uh, so that's the main battlefield news. In terms of uh, the political environment in Ukraine at the moment, it's quite interesting. President Zelensky has said that he hopes Putin will spend the rest of his life in a dark basement with a bucket, uh, not mincing his words. He's speaking in the village of Yahin, north of Kiev, where he and Robert Heibeck, the German vice chancellor, have travelled to mark the one-year anniversary of the liberation of the settlement from Russian troops. Brzezinski said, after seeing all this, I hope the president of Russia will spend the rest of his days in a basement with a bucket for a toilet. Now, just the, the context of this place, soon after the invasion, the Russians forced what we understand to be around 367 people, nearly the entire population of the town, into a cramped school basement. The villagers, including a six-week-old baby, were kept there for almost a month, and 11 of them died. And so... Uh, Naturally, this has become a site like Erpin, like Bucha, that has become associated with Russian war crimes, hence why it is somewhere that um, the Ukrainian government likes to draw international attention to. And say Robert Heibeck, Germany's vice chancellor, is there at the moment. Some quite striking remarks from him, actually. There's been some footage, we've just released a video of it, where he apologises profoundly for uh, German delays in delivering weapons. Now, it's not specific whether he means recent delays or whether he's talking about initial delays prior to the war. He did make reference to the conversations that he'd had with President Zelensky in 2021, so prior to the invasion, when then, he says, Zelensky had urged him as to the urgency of them sending more weaponry to try and deter Putin. And he says that back then they weren't able to do enough. And he says, and I quote, I felt deeply ashamed and feel deeply ashamed for what took place. So uh, naturally, this is a, a significant moment in terms of Germany and, and their um, reaching out to, to Ukraine. Although, as I say, yesterday, there was some rather concerning remarks from Germany's defense minister with regard to the extent of how many more weapons they will be able to give Ukraine in the long term, because uh, according to them, the, the cost of the finance of, of of rebuilding the German army in the way that they design is is already too expensive and so the idea of them giving more weapons away at this time when it's vulnerable is not advised that's that's the uh, their defense of not perhaps doing more at this moment although of course it is important to emphasize that Germany has still given an enormous amount of weaponry to Ukraine I think it goes Britain uh, in the European context, as you say, uh, Britain and then Germany. So there's still uh, very, very important uh, in terms of the role that has been played. But clearly, I think that it's because they promised so much that so much of the conversation around Germany now is, have they done enough? Whereas perhaps if they promised a little bit less, then we wouldn't be having the conversation in those terms. So that's the, the battlefield uh, situation at the moment and the political context in Ukraine. Just one other update, and uh, we're not sure I know Roland will have um, some more thoughts on this is, of course, relating to the aftermath of this assassination or alleged assassination, I should say, in Russia yesterday of the prominent, uh, sorry, over the weekend with the uh, prominent uh, Russian Blodder Tatarsky. Now, there is an update in this space in that Putin has signed a decree to bestow the Order of Courage, which is one of Russia's highest honours, on Tatarsky in recognition of, quote, bravery shown in the performance 
of his professional duty. Now, evidently, the, the, the regime seeks to make a martyr of him. I think it's fair to say, based on this, despite the fact, as I said yesterday, he's a man who's supported specific war crimes and atrocities on the Ukrainian people. Uh, I think it was last year before the, um, or just after the Kremlin ceremony confirming the annexation of the four Ukrainian regions, he said, you know, saying, saying we will defeat everyone, we'll kill everyone, we'll loot anywhere we want to and everything will be just as we see it. This isn't a matter of interpretation as to whether this man endorses Russian war crimes. It's part of his appeal, his popularity is him saying what others can't say. And so uh, I think this is quite a concerning and revealing development. Uh, there are others relating to uh, Daya Trapova, who is the um, uh, 26-year-old who's been arrested for this. Her husband has said that uh, he does not believe that she is responsible. And uh, he says, I quote, I'm completely sure she would never have been able to do something like this on uh, her own. And he told the journalist in Uzbekistan where he's living in exile. So um, James Kilner on the podcast yesterday talked through her um, confession, if that is indeed what we saw. And uh, in that video, she looks very tired. She smiles nervously and says, I'm, I'm being at the spot of the killing of Vladimir Tatarsky is why she's there. And there's a lot of question marks around this and who might be responsible. Clearly, the Russian state, and this is what they've been saying today, is that this is the responsibility of Ukraine. They're highlighting the fact that she is associated with or an active supporter of Alexei Navalny, the chief opposition leader who's imprisoned. And that is clearly the narrative they are trying to push and making a martyr of this uh, of this blogger. Whereas, of course, there are many reasons as to thinking why this may be uh, uh, something actually that's more of an inside job of this benefits uh, Russia in certain ways and particularly in keeping the mercenary groups in check. But I imagine Roland's got, got a lot more thoughts on this. Well, thank you very much for those updates, Francis. Um, Roland, yeah, let's come to you. What are your thoughts and how have your thoughts changed um, on this, this bombing in St. Petersburg? What are you thinking? I'm thinking we should all be massively withhold, withholding our judgment or not rushing to judgment on this one because there's a whole load of theories pushed with great passion and great conviction by people who sound like they know what they're talking about. Really, they don't know much more than us. So, And whichever version you push aligns very closely with whichever side you support in this war. So as, as Francis was saying, the Russian state, but also Mr. Tatarsky's kind of peers amongst the military blogging community are very much pushing the line. This was the Ukrainians who did this. It's a state-sponsored assassination by the Ukrainians to instill fear and terrify the most active you know, part of society. And that's what it is. Um, and the Ukrainian state, conversely, and I say the, convenient, the, the Ukrainian state because uh, Mikhail Podolyak, the, um, that adv an advisor to Mr. Zelensky himself, tweeted yesterday, that no, this is this is clearly Russian infighting. If this was going to happen, it was like an abscess waiting to burst, and you know, gangsterish methods are going to be used to settle scores, and we are going to sit back and watch while you know Russia is engulfed by this new time of troubles. Now, the truth is, I'm afraid to say that we just don't know. We 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 know that you know there's this woman. She was filmed there. You know, we know she delivered this bust. The Russian authorities seem fairly convinced the bomb was in this this bus this statue of mr tatarsky that she delivered they say that the explosion occurred about 60 centimeters off the ground that's table height it was sitting on a table and they've managed to track her down arrest her and, and we've all seen the very short video in which she admits to being present and admits to having delivered the statue that exploded and then there's that very the kind of telling phrase i mean they, 
it's almost like watching a you know a cliffhanger on a netflix series the, the interrogator asks her and who gave you that statue and she says can i tell you later cut you know tune in for the next episode i'm i think it's perfectly plausible that this was russian infighting i think it's perfectly plausible that Tatarsky was viewed as someone expendable. I think the infighting, you know, the very public feud between Ministry of Defense and Evgeny Prigozhin is something to take seriously. You know, Tatarsky was a, an associate of Prigozhin, very close to him. He was one of the bloggers who kind of amplified Prigozhin's very public criticisms of the Ministry of Defense. One of those bloggers who, you know, even without Prigozhin telling him to, you know, the whole military Russian blogger community has been very critical of the high commands management of this war almost from the beginnings he's one of those guys you know if you wanted to send a message of displeasure to prigozhin you kind of thuggishly put a shot across his bowels blowing up one of his associates in a cafe that he owns in his home city is a, is a pretty blunt way to do that but it's purely speculation you know I, I i would buy that i think it's plausible but we don't know and conversely um this idea the russians have that the ukrainians did this well I can see why they would want to rub out Vladimir Tatarsky. And, you know, if we think back to Daria Dugan, or a lot of them are talking about Daria Dugan, that's the daughter of Alexander Dugan, who was, who was blown up in a car bombing outside Moscow in, was it August, I think, last year. And at the time, it all seemed a bit fishy because she wasn't that prominent. She certainly wasn't as prominent as her father. I didn't really see how it furthered the Ukrainian war effort in particular. It kind of provided the Russians with a martyr and the FSB very, very quickly had a suspect and a narrative which made me think, well, that's a little bit suspicious. How did you know that so quickly if you're only just investigating it? But then in October, some American official briefed the New York Times that, yes, America thinks the Ukrainians did kill Daria Dugina and they were pretty angry when they found out about it and told the Ukrainians to knock it off. So put it all together, I think... <laughs> Sorry, sorry to sit on the fence and not give you a definitive answer. Um, I would say it's too early to say, and I think you should be wary of these siren voices of people telling you that uh, they absolutely know it's clear what happened here. Thank you very much for that, Roland. Before we go to Melissa Lawford, can I ask you one more question, Roland? Obviously, you've been following the story of the arrest of the American journalist Evan Gushkovich for the Wall Street Journal. As a as someone who's reported for many, many years in Russia yourself, what was your reaction to the arrest and how do you see this story unfolding? At a personal level, it's it's very unpleasant. I mean, firstly, because I, I didn't know, I don't know Evan personally, but a lot of my peers do and a lot of the people I work with in Moscow, the kind of network of former Moscow correspondents know him, respect him, are quite convinced this is complete rubbish. That he's a spy. So, you know, it, it feels, you know, it's a menacing thing that's happened to a, you know, a community of which I'm a part, which is very unpleasant. And the other thing is, of course, when you're a foreign correspondent in Russia, you need foreign ministry accreditation. And that's not necessarily easy to get because they might drag their feet. The procedure might take a bit longer than you expect. When you first apply for it, if you haven't applied before, it takes ages. Um, and, and the presumption is it takes ages because, you know, the FSB are very thoroughly vetting you to work out whether you're a spy or not. And then you get the card and then, you know, it gets easier to renew it because they know you, because they've watched what you're doing, because, you know, they're, they're fairly, fairly comfortable that you're not a threat or something and and so on evan was working there for years i mean he's, he's gone through this process for ages so, i mean the idea that first of all the idea that you know that he's a spy just doesn't doesn't stack up that they would they would have known much earlier and they would have evicted him the second thing is like the the accreditation was not like a get out of jail free card in a way it wasn't kind of a golden ticket like 
diplomatic immunity that meant you could do what you wanted. And it didn't mean that, you know, the Russians weren't going to be occasionally very unhappy with your reporting. It didn't mean they wouldn't kick you out of the country. You know, so Luke Harding of The Guardian was kicked out in 2011 when they took a dislike to him. Sarah Rainsford of the BBC, just before this war, she was evicted. I think I think that was more of a kind of a kind of tit-for-tat thing because she represented the British state broadcaster and they wanted to send a message of displeasure about something Britain had done. I don't think that was really about Sarah's performance, but the excuse was you're a threat to national security. There's other people I know who don't get accredited who are effectively been refused in the past because the Russians, for whatever reason, have decided we don't want that person in the country. And that's how that 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 was how it worked. Like no one was ever arrested, thrown in jail, and accused of spying. And yet it kind of it kind of felt like this moment was coming for a long time because you remember at the beginning of the war there were these incredibly draconian laws about how to report the war came in and it looked absolutely terrifying. A lot of a lot of foreign correspondents left, some went back, there are still some working there now, you know, including Evan was working there and, and still able to do quite a good job. And I think I kind of it was almost a sense that the Russians were kind of saying, oh, no, no, hold on a second, this was meant for the domestic media. We're not gonna, you know, terrorize you guys and throw you in jail. But you know, something changed with the war, I think. I think I think the sense in the Russian establishment that the West is just straight up an enemy and let's stop, you know, pussyfooting around with diplomatic niceties. That has clearly got the upper hand here. I think I think that's what's going on here. I think that's what, you know, Evan is a victim of. And that's uh and that's kind of very, very unpleasant because you know, for a long time, there was this it's basically a diplomatic understanding of it. It was kind of tit for tat, right? It was the Russians attitude was you obey our rules and we'll obey yours so you know the west would accredit russian journalists who could operate here that meant we could operate there and those rules were more or less respected and the foreign ministry to be fair to them when you were dealing with them they were you know pretty professional um about all that so that that aspect is deeply unpleasant it's obviously personally deeply deeply unpleasant for evan um and for, for everyone associated with him and everyone i know who knows him you know just speaks very very highly of him as you know, an immensely professional, dedicated journalist who loves Russia, knows an awful lot about it. You know, like many of us who lived there, you know, dedicated a large chunk to his life to trying to understand the place and tell its stories. Well, thank you very much, Roland, for that. Melissa Lawford, our economics reporter, can we come to you? You've written a fantastic and quite lengthy piece for The Telegraph in the business section about basically the, geopolit- the geopolitics of, of oil. On Sunday, nine members of OPEC announced a voluntary output cut of 1.2 million barrels of oil from May to the end of the year. Can you talk us through this? What is OPEC? Why did they do this? And what's the role of Saudi Arabia in this move? And how does it all relate to Russia? Hi. Yeah, it, it, this is a really, really big geopolitical move and it's a very big deal for Russia. So OPEC is the organization of the petroleum exporting countries. It's a pact between 13 nations. Uh, And and this decision was made by OPEC Plus, which is uh, a group of 23. So it's OPEC and its allies. And and of all of these countries, Saudi Arabia is is just by far the largest in terms of size, population, oil exports, everything. It's it's completely the biggest player. And the the decision that they've made to cut production followed another decision in October where they also announced a decision to cut production. Altogether, those decisions uh, account for about 3.7% of global demand. And, you know, we, we have very simple supply and demand dynamics playing out when the supply goes down and, and when expectations of future supply go down. 
the price goes up. And we saw this immediately uh, on Monday. The price of Brent crude jumped from about $79 a barrel to about 85 That's been maintained and forecasters are expecting that price to go up further. So Goldman Sachs has raised its forecast for Brent crude by December 2023 to go up to $95 per barrel. Previously, they'd forecast 90 And then, you know, this is going to go on for a while. Next year, by December 24, um, they're forecasting an oil price at $100 a barrel. And there, there's kind of three big effects from this. The first, you know, is is the geopolitical implication. Saudi Arabia and OPEC, they're, they're spurning the US and the West, and, and they're moving closer to Russia to, and to, to that Russia-China alliance. Um, this move is going to bring more economic strain for the West. It's, it's, it might not increase inflation, but it's going to mean that it will be stickier. It's, it's likely to stay higher for longer as a result. And the third really, really big effect is um, it, this is going to bring a massive boost to Russian funds. Russia is a big oil exporting nation. And when the price goes up, they get a lot more money. So in your view, I mean, that, that was a wonderful summary. Thank you very much, Melissa. In your view, do, do you think we, this move could undermine Western sanctions that have been playing out against Russia for the, for the past year? Yes, <laughs> I was sad to say uh, very much I think it, it will. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't... Well, well, basically, the, the Western approach to sanctions, obviously we had a huge amount of headlines on, you know, all, all through last year on companies stopping business with Russia and specifically targeting individuals and oligarchs. But actually, when it came to oil, we, we were quite slow. So actually, you know, we, we only introduced... Um, an embargo, or the EU, the EU only introduced an embargo on on Russian crude in in December 2022, and and only it was only in February this year that the embargo came in on oil products. So for the majority of last year, Russia was actually benefiting quite a lot from very high oil, oil prices, and it got a huge amount of money. And that, and those revenues were just starting to come under pressure until it just got this boost from OPEC. So, you know, and, and this is quantified quite directly. So for every for every $1 increase in the price of Brent crude, the Center for Economic Policy Research estimates that boosts Russian oil export revenues by about $2.7 billion a year. So if we get a, a $10 jump in the oil price, that's an extra $27 billion for the Russian government. Um, you know, and CPR is is estimating about a 22.5% boost to, to Russia's export revenues, oil export revenues. That's going to go up to about $145 billion this year. And we all know where that money is going to go. And when it comes to sanctions, you know, the, there are a lot of nations that will not buy Russian oil at all. But then the OECD and the EU, there's a a cap. So other nations can buy oil from Russia as long as the price is below a certain cap. And if price is below a certain cap, then they can use the insurance services and the shipping, which is based in mostly in, in Europe. So some nations are, are kind of in a, a middle and, you know, but the price has been below the cap. Uh, and as the price of oil goes up, they will pay more money. And then, and then you have other nations like China, which are just operating outside the cap. And so through those nations, there will be quite a 
you know, a direct boost for Russia. But yeah, no, I, I it's a it's a real move. It, 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 I think it does undo quite a lot of the good work that Western nations have been doing to to try and constrain Russia economically. And I think we need to do more. Thank you very much, Melissa. Just a final question from me. The role of Saudi Arabia here seems absolutely key. Do, do I mean, do we think that th- their influence in this move is primarily to aid and boost the Saudi economy and it is having geopolitical, having a, a geopolitical impact? Or are those two things really going hand in hand? I mean, you know, OPEC's OPEC's reasons for the cut, they said they were anticipating a a drop in in global demand, Uh, you know, that they want to preemptively reduce supply so so that it doesn't hit their income. The jury's slightly out on that. There are quite a lot of other factors weighing in. You know, I mean, we've got China's just reopening... It's, it's going through the process of reopening after its very strict lockdown. And, you know, with that comes the total reopening of, of world aviation, which in turn flows into higher demand for oil. So, you know, that that was one sector in which demand was really likely to rise. It, it, you know, it, it's slightly debatable, those those forecasts on, on falling oil demand. Um, when it comes to the geopolitics of this, I mean, it's really important to mention Saudi Arabia's decision in this goes directly against what America was hoping for. So over the summer, Joe Biden went to Jeddah and he met with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and he, he was going because he wanted to ask them to increase the supply to help to help ease inflation. And what Saudi Arabia and OPEC have done since then is, is in quite a direct contradiction of of that hope and i think that is a big statement about where they see themselves on on the world stage and and who they're aligned with well that was absolutely fascinating thank you very much melissa for coming on and talking to us about that do come back when you have more updates in the future thank you very much melissa francis there is some breaking diplomatic news i'll come to you thanks david well i echo melissa's sentiments this is a big development and a concerning one there was some evidence that the Russian economy was beginning to fray around the edges somewhat. I'd been reading some interesting pieces that were looking at the regional impacts within Russia of this war and how the federal government was essentially having to bail them out. But that may not have been an option in the coming year. And that was leading to some quite concerned analysis from Russian economists about what that might mean in the long term. Also, it's worth saying as well that the long-term prospects of the Russian economy were not good as a consequence of this war. They managed to offset some of the damage in the short term, but their prospects are still not promising. But this may give them a lifeline at a critical moment. So we'll just have to see what the impact of this is. The big question, as you raised there, is whether this is something that is more deliberate, geopolitical, calculated to do some damage to the West and its causes, or whether this is pure self-interest out of Saudi Arabia. Uh, We don't know yet. Uh, I think it's too early to say. But nonetheless, this is clearly a a big step back and a a big blow to Joe Biden, who, of course, as you say, went to Saudi Arabia and has not got what he wanted out of that deal, clearly. So as I say, we'll be watching that space. In the other diplomatic developments, of course, the big one today, and I flagged this yesterday, is Finland joining NATO. Uh, as far as I know, they are about to do so at the time of recording. I think they're probably signing it as we speak. So by the time this goes out, I'm sure it's already happened, uh, barring some disaster. Um, but a big development. I already talked yesterday about the strategic significance of this. This being a war, of course, that supposedly began as uh, Putin tried to 
claim that NATO was expanding on Russian borders. And as a consequence, uh, he claimed to have invaded Ukraine in order to deter NATO expansionism. Well, now, uh, through democratic means, Finland has decided to join the bloc. And as a consequence of that, the uh, border that NATO has with Russia has greatly expanded. I think it already... So I think Finland shares a border of around 1,300 kilometres, I think. And this now, of course, means that that's an additional 1,400 kilometres of NATO on Russia's border. So it's a huge blow from Putin's perspective in terms of his justification for the war. And you can imagine that this is going to be very hard to conceal from the Russian public, although naturally it will be justified in terms of this being... uh, Plot from NATO. So um, I'm sure there'll be some very angry Russian reaction from this already. Yesterday they were saying that this is the, the latest aggravation of the situation. That was from Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman. He was saying uh, this forces us to take countermeasures in tactical and strategic terms, but didn't expand as to what those exactly would be. Um, but I think this is a huge relief to people in Finland uh, who, of course, are have been watching what's been going on in Ukraine in complete horror and thinking, you know, given their history, whether this in different circumstances could have been then as it has been in in not so many decades ago, uh, if one's taking the, the long broad brush of history. So um, I, I think now all eyes will be on whether Sweden is able to join as well. Of course, Turkey have been holding that up. But I think that uh, all the signs are that at some point they will give permission for Sweden to join as well, which again will be further Um, big uh, expansion of NATO as a direct consequence of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So that's another significant diplomatic update. And just lastly, one more, uh, President Macron is visiting China tomorrow, and he says it is designed to dissuade Beijing from supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but without alienating a crucial trade and geopolitical player. So Macron said in a conference with reporters, China is the only country in the world capable of having an immediate and radical impact on the conflict in one direction or another. So we, I, yeah, Macron, as we've already talked about, he, I think he fancies himself rather than the negotiator of the West, the negotiator in chief. And he has, of course, sought to keep dialogue with Putin and Xi open, um, despite, of course, particularly in Putin's case, uh, him outright lying as to his intentions and then of course um, committing numerous atrocities in Ukraine but uh, it will be interesting to see what comes out of that summit we're still waiting of course for this uh, uh, highly advertised from China uh, phone call with Zelensky which was part of their justification internationally for having the summit in Moscow with Putin but we haven't seen any uh, off spins of that which I think you can read uh, read a lot into the fact that we've not heard, heard any more as to what their real intentions were but it'll be interesting as I say to see what comes out of this because Putin and Xi's relationship seems to be ever growing and it's a question now of whether the West can reach out to China and emphasise the dangers of them building that relationship ever more closely although my fear of course as regular listeners will know is that it may be too little too late I would like very much to go to our guest now, Oksana Semenik. First of all, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Would you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from and what has your life been like for the past year? Thank you for inviting me. Hi, everyone. My name is Oksana. I'm an art historian and a journalist. So now I'm in Kiev. A raid and, uh, ended like 
maybe an hour ago. So I worked at a, as a journalist since 2016, and I was writing to Ukrainian magazines about contemporary Ukrainian art. And um, before the full-scale invasion started, I had many plans <laughs> to write a book and start a printed magazine about culture. But everything changed. And um, so we lived in Bucha. It's in Kiev region. I think you know where it is and what's the story of the occupation of the city. So we with my husband lived in the basement for the kindergarten for two weeks. And one week was under Russian occupation without any power, almost no water and food. So and then we escaped to Kiev walking for 20 kilometers. And in spring, Ukrainian curator Olena Martinuk from Rutgers uh, University and Zimmerly Museum invited me to, she invited me to program at the Zimmerly Art Museum in New Jersey. And I worked there as an assistant curator and researcher. And my main topic was the colonization of Ukrainian art in the museum collection. And so I returned to Kiev in December. Now I'm here and I'm working on... Um, my on my thesis and uh, the topic is the image of the chernobyl catastrophe in ukrainian art and of course i'm running the twitter account <laughs> ukrainian art history well thank you very much for that summary oksana let's let's start there then ukrainian art history a very popular twitter account in which you you talk about ukrainian art and its position in in, in the history of art of the, of the world why did you start it what, what are you trying to do with this account so first, there were no such Twitter account about Ukrainian art history. And it was such a simple idea for me to create short stories about Ukrainian artists in English. And uh, my first posts were about Arhip Kuinji, an artist from Mariupol, uh, Fedir Krychevsky and Katerina Bilokur. And I wanted to show three different stories without stereotypes and propaganda because Russians claim that Kuinji is a Russian artist and museum and institutions uh, actually write about him as Russian. But so his museum in Mariupol was destroyed as actually 90% of the city. I think you may be heard about the siege of Mariupol in Donbass region. So... But and the painting that survived it were looted. So the other artist, uh, Fedor Krychevsky, was a successful modernist artist whose works were presented at Venice Biennale and museums worldwide. But anyone in Soviet Union who did not agree to work in social realism style and praise the Communist Party in the in their works was repressed, and he died in a European key region in 1947 because of starvation. And Katerina Bilokur was a great self-taught artist from the small village, uh, also in the Kyiv region. She was so talented and famous that her works were exhibited in Europe, United States, across the Soviet Union. But the communist government was just using her works and never paying. And she lived in very poor condition, conditions. And um, so I'm looking at the Ukrainian art history from social and political perspectives. Because art as culture um, never was non-political. It's 
it's always political. Oksana, can I ask, you mentioned in, in your summary there about some of the differences between what the Soviet government wanted artists to work with in, in terms of social realism and what the Ukrainian artists wanted to do. Could you tell us a little bit about their art itself? What marks it out? Are there techniques or um, special ways in which these artists worked? And how, how would you as, a, as an art historian describe them? One of my favourite Ukrainian artists is because I think Many people that even not interested in, in art at all know him, especially his black square. And actually, his life story is it, it shows how these political and social conditions were actually how it's influenced him. So maybe I can tell a little bit more about him. And um, so he was born in Kiev. And throughout his life, he emphasized that his artistic vision of the world was shaped by the Ukrainian village because he was, his parents, he, he was traveling a lot around Ukrainian villages and about and around different regions from Podila to Slobozhanshina, which is Kharkiv region. And um, even in his autobiography, he said that he feels that he's Ukrainian and that village. He, he watched the great experiments, how the peasant woman painted, and he even helped them. So he remembered all the colors he had taken from the village. And for example, Dmitro Horbachev, Ukrainian art historian, he wrote that suprematism probably can be connected with paintings at traditional houses in the villages at Podila. And so according to the sketches of Malevich and other progressive Ukrainian avant-gardian artists, including Alexandra Exter, and this is really important that you probably, if you're interested a little bit in art, you know about Russian art, which actually, which you know, which actually Ukrainian or Belarusian art, or maybe Russian, but it includes all the nations and especially Ukrainian artists. So this Russian art history appropriated the Ukrainian artists as Kazimir Malevich or Alexandra Ekster or David Burluk, for example, and claimed that it's just Russian avant-garde. But actually people know just a little bit about Ukrainian avant-garde which was repressed. So, yeah, a little bit more about Malevich, that he was really closely connected to the Ukrainian village, and uh, he was deeply affected by the Holodomor, the genocide created by Stalin in 1932-1933. And he's almost the only one artist who created the works dedicated to the famine in those years. So... And he was repressed himself because when he was teaching in Kiev Art Academy in 1930, Malevich was summoned to Leningrad for questioning. And after the torture, his health was really bad and he died in Leningrad in 1935. So about Ukrainian art, actually, and why we know so little about Ukrainian art, we should understand that Russia colonized Ukraine for centuries and why do you not know many names of Ukrainian artists? Because they were appropriated by Russia as Ilya Repin, Kazimir Malevich, Alexander Exter. They immigrated or assimilated because they immigrated because of 
hard political situation in in Ukraine when Bolsheviks came because it was Ukrainian People Republic before it was an independent state and the Bolsheviks just occupied the territory. So those artists who immigrated, they were Sonia Delone, uh, Yakiv Gnizdovsky, Baranov Rosine, or most of them, most of the Ukrainian artists, they were repressed and censored by the communist system for decades, as Mikhailo Bychuk, Vasily Ermilov, Alla Horska. And unfortunately, even Ukrainians do not know their art history well. So that's why I'm trying to show the historical context and how politics influenced art. And of course, decolonized this system when Ukrainian artists were appropriated. And when, you know, for example, a lot of institutions or art historians, when they're talking about Ukraine, they use this colonial lens. For example, s- saying that Ukraine is former Russian Empire or Soviet Union, or the using what is now Ukraine, what does it even mean? No one is saying that India is former British Empire or what is now India. So, so when we are talking about Ukrainian culture and art, we should not repeat these Russian narratives that, like, it's never existed. Like it's like it's existed just for thirty years or thirty-five. You know, Oksana. Can I ask, several museums over the past few months have changed their descriptions of of, of various paintings and works of art. Could you take us into that a little bit? What have they changed? What are the the really big examples of that 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 you'd want to talk about and share? So it actually started a year ago with with this Ukrainian dancers of Degas, of French artist Edgar Degas. Institutions and museums called them as Russian artists, but they actually have this Ukrainian dress. And we know as the researchers that probably they were from Ukraine and he actually didn't name them as Russian. So it started a year ago with National Art Gallery in London. But since he painted a lot of these Ukrainian dancers, we have these works in the Met and also maybe somewhere in Europe as well. I think in Sweden, I don't remember. But a few months ago, Metropolitan Museum in New York recognized artists such as Kuinji and Rapin as Ukrainians, and as well as Ukrainian dancers of the gods. So also I know that some changes has been have been made um, in Stadelik uh, Museum in Amsterdam. It's uh, about Malevich because... They they recognize that he's actually Ukrainian and he has connection to Ukrainian art history. And also the newest is a change in um, German museum in Stuttgart. They changed Alexandra Exter. I mean, not changed, but they recognized his. They recognized her nationality that that he's Ukrainian artist. And I think there are more changes that we know and why it's been made because. First of all, museum is the institution that doing research and share knowledge. And decolonization, it, it, it's not new in the museum world because people are talking about this for decades now. Um, even about, I don't know, some British museum or Louvre in Paris. But 
scholars. They're talking more about British colonialism or French one and stolen artifacts from indigenous people, for example, like Native Americans in the United States. But conversation about Russian imperialism started just now. So it's never... Even when I was when I was studying in the Rutgers University and we were talking a lot about decolonization and museum studies and, um, you know, cultural heritage, it was never about Russian imperialism because um, because actually what most people in the West know about Russians is from Russian side or 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 this colonial view on other countries like Ukraine or Georgia or Latvia, Lithuania, etc. So, for example, many people think that Soviet Union was something like socialist utopia, but at the same time, we as Ukrainians know about Soviet Union as, you know, as about great repressions. I mean, really big and awful repressions, Holodomor as a genocide of Ukrainians and etc. etc. So it was actually just another empire, like Russian Empire. And I believe that Russia still um still exists like empire because look at all this occupied lands, all, all occupied territories even even in this art historian field, no one was talking about hermitage as about this imperial museum with stolen wor- works from different cultures and countries, actually. So, so I don't think, you know, when people, they are saying that this is political changes, I don't believe in it. I think it's first steps of decolonization. That's really interesting. Thank you, Oksana, for taking us through that. Just one more question from me. You've mentioned a number of Ukrainian artists' names and their works. For people who who aren't familiar at all with with what you're talking about, is there a particular artist you would recommend for for them to have a look at if they wanted to understand more about what what you're talking about and Ukrainian art in general? Oh, it's a, a hard question for me because... As I said, um, probably one of the my favorite artists is Kazimir Malevich because he was so connected to Ukraine. Um, I recommend you maybe to Google and find some books and works of um, Ukrainian art historian Tetyana Filevska. She was researching about connections of Malevich and Ukraine for years, and she's great. But also one of my favorite artists is Maria Primachenko. She was born into a peasant family, but like many Ukrainian women from the village, she lived you no, know, she lived among art. Everything in the houses were decorated, and she painted houses since childhood. So, and Primachenko is best known for her fantastic animals, but many of this and many of these animals have a story behind them so they were dedicated to family relatives or neighbors and it's super interested but as for me she's also interested as um not like naive or primitive as some art historians during the soviet times would call her but she's a modernist artist for me and also her work series about Chernobyl catastrophe is very powerful 
because her village is situated only 30 kilometers from Chernobyl and she refused to evacuate. But this spring, Russian occupants destroyed the Ivankiv museums where many of her works were located and it was reported loss of 25 of Primachenko's works. But local people were able to save 14 of uh, these works in the museum from the fire. So, I mean... You can start from follow. You can start following my account and then read about um, Ukrainian artists that you're interested in, and then probably read more, Google it, and go to your local museum and ask about Ukrainian artists in the collections. I think. Hi, Oksana. This is Francis. Thank you for your time today. Just a couple of questions from me. We've reported on this podcast in recent months instances of Russian looting of art, uh, stolen art, and even the sort of destruction of Ukrainian art. I just wonder whether you've got any more insights and updates on that. I know that Kherson Art Museum that was looted and almost all collections, like 90 or 80 percent, it was stolen. And now they're working with, so they're categorizing the what was actually stolen and where it could be possible be, because they even somehow somehow found these works in Crimea right now. And I know that uh, Ministry of Culture now is creating these like working group for searching Ukrainian art that was that was stolen, because you know it's not started a year ago the many ukrainian museums were ocu- occupied in the occupied territories as crimea or donetsk and luhansk but also they took some works during the soviet times and never returned so it's i think it's gonna huge research for art historians and museum workers and that's all i know for now thanks Thank you. One last question from me, which is, just wonder what you think the future of Ukrainian art will look like when one looks at traditional art in many countries. It has a nationhood at its heart, and that's something that has been lost in art in recent decades, really since the Second World War onwards. It's been much more about abstract forms, and it's sort of tried to separate, art has tried to separate itself from individual countries. But I wonder whether you think that will be the future of Ukrainian art, given that, of course, it's fought this awful war and is fighting this awful war. And clearly, Ukrainian identity and culture is at the very centre of that. So your thoughts on, on what Ukrainian art will look like in, after this war will be very interesting. Thanks. Actually, I'm a very optimistic person. And I believe that we're going to win. And, and as, as I said, it's really important to, to take back our heritage, our stolen heritage from these museums. For example, from, you know, museums in Crimea or Kherson or that was stolen during the Soviet period because... And also in Russia, and it's really, you know, interesting for me as for art historian, um, they have a lot of archives about Ukrainian artists in Russia. 
And we, as art historians, we don't have any access to it. So, for example, when some museums like MoMA asking me about uh, documents about Malevich that he said, where, where we can see that he considered, his, considered himself as Ukrainian in different documents, I can prove it because the archives in Russia and it's really hard to work and to, you know, create um, our art history without artifacts, without archives. And now a lot of museums and archives, they were destroyed. But what actually said to me is people were killed. So as as during Holodomor or Holocaust or Second World War, we lost a lot of artists and, you know, writers, talented people, because the best people of us are dying in the front line or in just peaceful cities just because of Russian bombs. And, um, and this really important because if we can maybe build new museums or archives we can't you know these people they will not come back and we just lost them and with every person it's the whole universe right so about ukrainian art i'm actually really curious myself because last year I've never liked the abstract expressionism, but just a year ago, I realized what it was all about. It's when this pain of war and the pain of death and everything awful around you, and you can't even explain it. You can't even talk about it. You can't find the words. So that's how this abstractionism created during after second world war so i'm very curious and i hope that you know museums institutions art historians from different countries and scholars they're gonna research more ukraine ukrainian art or or art from georgia or latvia latvia but not Russian art, because there's so many different researches about Russian art from Russia with this colonial lens, which I think is influenced a lot how people see Russia and, you know, believe in it as in some socialist utopian, etc. So I think we have a lot of work to do. And yeah, that's, I, I think, I, I hope I answered to your question. Well, thank you very much, Oksana, for your time and Francis for your questions. Oksana, anything, anything, anything we haven't talked about you'd like to mention? Or shall we go to our final updates from Francis? Thank you for inviting me. And uh, read more about Ukrainian art history and Ukrainian artists. Thanks, Oksana. Francis, can we just come to you for your final thoughts? Thanks, David. Oksana spoke very movingly a moment ago about measuring the impact of this war on the arts and the many artists and writers who have lost their lives as a consequence of Putin's invasion. Penn Center, Ukraine, have been keeping a track of some of these individuals who've lost their lives and they have a list on their website of those individuals, historians, thinkers, writers, film directors. 
they're all there and it's a very poignant list and it all just reminded me of a scene in the classic documentary Shock of the New when the presenter and art historian Robert Hughes stands at Tiefval, which is one of the huge memorials bearing the names of tens of thousands of soldiers who were killed in the First World War in a battle there. And he says, and I've pulled up the quote, We can't know and can't even guess what might have been painted or might have been written had the war never happened. As for the waste of mines, we know of some that were killed too soon. But for every one of them whose name survives, there must have been scores and possibly hundreds who simply never got a chance to develop. And so were you to ask, where is the Picasso of England? The probable answer is that they are here, by which he means, of course, the War Memorial. And I just think it underlines really how difficult it is in war to measure lost potential, that we track the numbers who've been killed, the buildings destroyed, the lives lost, but we don't track as easily, or we can't really, the potential that has been squandered as a result of this invasion. And I think it is important to at least try and visualise that. And of course, one way of doing so is measuring the tragedy in, in unwritten words and unpainted canvases. And as Oksana's words just, just reminded me of that. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.